I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, all you hopeful romantics. And welcome to a very bittersweet episode of What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute, where a glass of rosé isn't required, but it is certainly encouraged. Especially today, because sadly this will be my last episode. But I promise, it's one you won't want to miss. My guest today is online dating coach and relationship expert, Demona Hoffman. When it comes to love, Demona just gets it. But you don't have to take my word for it. You could listen to one of her clients like Drew Barrymore or Garcelle, no last name necessary because she's so incredible, from The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Come on, she's even the OkCupid official dating expert. In a world where so many of us are clueless when it comes to love, Demona brings some much needed clarity, levity, and heart. But that's not all. If you stick around after Demona, you'll hear some bonus content from two members of the A Broader Way Foundation, created 11 years ago by Adina Menzel and Tay Diggs to amplify the voices of young women and femmes through the arts. They bring some important insight about Meet Cute's recent collaboration with ABW, and honestly, both of these conversations today are deeply insightful, incredibly joyous, and hold a special place in my heart. That is why it is my pleasure to introduce to you, Demona Hoffman. Hello. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing so well. It's so nice to meet you, Demona. I'm Ashley. It's nice to meet you too, Ashley. And I love, is that wallpaper behind you? Yeah, it sure is. Look at you. Well, Demona Hoffman, it is so nice to have you here. You are obviously this huge relationship expert and guru in a world that is, I mean, love is so complicated and relationships to me. I'm curious, why did you choose to dedicate your life to this huge concept of love? First of all, I'm not huge. I'm only five feet tall. I'm very, very small, actually. People are generally very surprised when they meet me. (laughs) But I did not choose to dedicate my life. This line of work chose me, and I honestly believe that. Um, I actually used to work in casting in television, and I would teach classes for actors on how to market themselves, how to have headshots that would stand out to someone like me and how to be successful in auditioning. And I was online dating at the time. And you don't have to have a Northwestern degree to know that there are so many similarities there between your headshot and your dating profile photos and a first date and an audition. Once I realized the similarities there and applied what I knew from my casting experience and, and how to market yourself and think of yourself as a brand. And this is like before Instagram and before people were thinking of themselves as brands. I then used that to help myself meet my husband online and many of my friends and relatives to meet their partners online. And then I was like, wait a minute, I've hooked everybody I know up. Maybe there's something in here. Maybe there's something that I need to share with the world. And that's been now over 15 years. I love that. You're so right that 
our world really is so brand centric on Instagram, on our dating profiles, in our careers. How does one develop the knowledge of their authentic brand? That is a huge question. I know. Ashley. Like, it's because I want to uh, know. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really the core of what I aim to do. Like, the tagline on my website is love as you are. And mm-hmm. that was the big learning for me is that the more that I stripped away these layers of what society told me that I needed or who I thought would be attractive, I was always striving for that that image of beauty that is projected to us from media. Right. And I had the experience of it too. Like, it's not just, I was like, I don't feel as attractive as the girls in the magazines. Now I'd go to bars and all my friends would get asked for their number and I wouldn't. And I was like, what is going on here? And it was because I wasn't living in authenticity. I wasn't being my authentic self. And the more that I stepped into that and like my son calls me weird now, (laughs) I'm like, you know what? Yes, I am weird. I say where you're weird and lean into that because the more that you lean into that, the more you can find authentic love. And I really reject all of these ideas about traditional gender roles. I think we write the rules of our relationships today. And that's a gift. That's a huge gift Mm. that we can do that. And whatever you were told about what should be attractive or what men are looking for, I was like, I need to throw all that out of the window and just focus on the person that's in front of me and and me being my true self so that I can get my true needs met. But how did you do that? It's quite simple. And yet we make it so complicated. There's five areas of, I call it the love funnel, right? If you are feeling stuck in love, one of these areas is blocked, maybe two, maybe three, usually not more than that. And then we fix that little piece, shore it up, and then your love life flows. So we start everything with mindset. It's either what are your limiting beliefs about yourself or what are your mm, preconceived notions about who you should be meeting? And we tend to attract people who are the same kind of people that we've dated before, you know, these dating patterns, um, because they're kind of meeting a need that's deeply suppressed. We identify those dating patterns. And then we ask ourselves, is this really what I want? Am I, is this how I want to be treated in a relationship? Is this what I want for the future? Are these my values and my goals? And we really distill that down into your ideal mate vision. And this isn't a checklist. This isn't like he has to be six feet tall and make this much money and have a house and a job. (laughs) I mean, those things are nice, but ultimately those things are superficial. And some of those things are even changeable, but people don't tend to change their core values. People don't tend to change what they visualize for their future. Like, do they want kids? Do they not want kids? You need to have clarity on that before you even go on the dating app. We can't just be dating by chance. So the authenticity and the mindset piece is the first step. Second step is sourcing. Where are you meeting dates? And we can unpack this in a minute. Third step is screening. How are you sorting through dates to see who is worth investing your time in? Presentation. How are you showing up on dates? And then follow through. How are you closing the the loop, whether you're interested or not? It's that simple. One of those areas, if you're listening right now and you're like, oh, it's not working for me in love, Demona. One of those areas is blocked. We shore it up and it flows. Well, what's interesting is those seem like really great guidelines for life. I'm wondering how much would you change that funnel 
once you've found the person you want to be with? Or do you have to constantly go through those same things? I will tell you why I'm asking. I got engaged this year and I'm still constantly, all the things you just addressed, I'm still wrestling with. I'm still trying to find answers to, and it can change daily. (laughs) First of all, congratulations. Thank you. I just look at us as humans as we're unfinished, we're unfinished creatures. There's always room to learn and grow. Like the minute I stop learning, you could just go ahead and write my obituary because I'm dead. You know, I, yeah. I, that's the way I look at the world. And not everybody looks at the world in that way, but that's, that's my perspective. So I see every relationship you have, whether it's romantic or not, I see every relationship and situation as a chance to know yourself better, to understand the world better and to grow as a human. No pressure. No, and I would argue, I love that because I would argue that is why we're all so in love with rom-coms. It is two people who don't quite know themselves at the beginning of a film and are one step closer to it in the end. Well, and we also like rom-coms. <laughs> we could we could really talk about rom-coms. We like rom-coms because we're addicted to stories as well. So this is another thing that I see a lot with my clients that drive for completing the story that is deeply, deeply ingrained in our brains, causes us to fill in the blanks when we don't have the answers. So people will write into my podcast, Dates and Mates, and they'll be like, Dear Demona, how do I know if he likes me? How do I know if he's the one? What should I do in this situation? Because I've never been this far in a relationship before. We Because we we don't like sitting in that place of unknown of, Mm. you know, not knowing we, we want the clarity. We want the security and I hate to break it to you. There's no guarantees. And I've been with my husband. We've been married for 14 years. Oh, wait, I have to do the math. 14 years. I always forget. Don't tell him. Congratulations to you. (laughs) Thank you. In Hollywood years, it's 75. And we, we just keep showing up. That's the thing. We just keep showing up for one another and for ourselves and we keep growing together and I stay curious. And that's the thing that I'm always trying to get my clients to harness when they're dating. Don't go based on chemistry. Chemistry is a liar. It Mm. it really is. You will fall for butterflies and you will fall for hormones and you will find yourself years down the road wondering why you were together in the first place. You got to lead with curiosity. And what I knew when I met my husband, I mean, I thought he was cute. I don't, I don't know if he was like the cutest guy. I didn't know if I was like super madly in love with him. I didn't know the end of the story. I didn't know we were going to get married and have two kids and a dog and a house. I just was like, geez, I'm curious about this guy. I want to know how his brain works. I want to know what he wants out of life. I want to know more about him. And that curiosity is what's driven us through 14 years of marriage. I, again, great dating advice, but just great life advice. Oh my God. Stay curious people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm curious. Oh, I'm curious. See, uh, see you are. you're teaching me already. <laughs> um, what are the questions that you wish people were asking you when they first come to see you and they never do? Look at you coming through with the good questions. I wish people would ask why more often. And this Mm. is something that I've always unpacked with my clients, but I've realized that not a lot of dating coaches do. (laughs) And not we don't have a lot of opportunities to do that kind of self-inquiry. So I like doing it in the dating space. When you say you have a dating preference, I say why? 
Why must he be that tall? Why? And you cannot say to me, it's because you're five nine, and if you wear heels, you'll be taller than him. That is not an answer because then I will follow it up with another why. Well, why is that a problem for you? Mm. Well, how does that make you feel? Well, why? <laughs> um, and I know it sounds annoying and I hope your listeners haven't turned this off yet. Are you guys there? I think they're there. Are you there? Guys? Yeah. Um, I think that level of self-inquiry and I can't take credit. The five whys technique is actually, that's a traditionally a business technique and it was started by founder of Toyota to understand why they, they were having hiccups in their business processes. And so instead of like pointing the finger, they were like, let's get to the root of the problem. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why, 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 why? So I just why my clients to death. But as we unpack it, we start to realize we have things like racial bias that are sitting in our dating preference category that ultimately may be preventing us from having the deepest love that we could have. We have deep-seated insecurities around finances and um, our own security. We have deeply ingrained misconceptions about gender roles that are worth unpacking if you really want the kind of partnership that I assume you have and that I have. You got to look at that stuff. Take all your stuff out. Let's put it all on the table. Because if you just come to me and you're like, Damona, I want you to just uh, like order me up a man. Here are all the things on my list. I've been online dating. It doesn't work. And you go and you do the exact same thing that you've been doing. You're going to dial up the same man in a different costume. It reminds me of what you said. We're obsessed with stories. And it seems like we're afraid to jump into another story. And this curiosity you're bringing up seems to be the key. Oh, there's so much around stories that I hear. People don't want, they don't want to tell the story to their kids that they met online. Guess what? I like that I have kids to tell the story too. Okay. So put that aside. I didn't envision myself ordering everything that I consume on an app and having it delivered at my door within 48 hours. I didn't envision that. I didn't know that was possible for myself. And now I never want to go inside a store again. And (laughs) that is a wonderful change to my life. Dating apps can be that way for you. And there's also then the story of I've had my heart broken. I went through this before and I don't want the same thing to be replicated. Or I invested all of this time in this person that I met and it didn't, it didn't work out. And that's not a story I want to live or, you know, just whatever it is that is keeping you from being able to really step into being vulnerable, being in that unknown space, being curious, I invite you to unpack it and ask yourself why. Listening to you, it sounds like you have all the answers. Is there anything (laughs) that still stumps you that you still struggle with? You want me to be honest or you want me? (laughs) Generally. (laughs) I'm going to be straight with you. I have figured a lot of things out. I have lived a lot of life in uh, my short time on this planet. But of course, there are things there are things that I still struggle with. And speaking frankly, I still struggle with body image a lot. This is an ongoing struggle of mine that I know is my stuff. It is from how I was raised. It's from images. It's from rom-coms, right? Yes. (laughs) And I can simultaneously acknowledge it's not real. It is not real. It's a hundred percent in my head and it is something I constantly battle. And this is something also that I get a lot of questions from my listeners about, well, if I just lost 10 pounds, then maybe I could date. 
or how can I be body positive when everybody online is X is smaller than me or younger than me or has better skin than I do, or their hair is nicer or shinier, or I don't know what it is. Like comparison is the enemy of contentment, right? <laughs> so that is something just speak since, since we are speaking, frankly, that is something that I have to do literally daily self-work around. And I'm, I'm accepting that I probably will be doing this work my whole life. And that's okay. That's yeah. okay. That's where I am. That's where I am today. I mean, I will say how affirming it is. I myself cannot remember a time where body image was not an issue. And it's so affirming meeting a woman so strong and so accomplished that has that in common with me. So I really appreciate your transparency with that. Yeah. And let me tell you, uh, I think I've also made a huge mistake in going into a field where I'm on television all the time. It sure doesn't help. It sure doesn't help body image to constantly have to be looking at yourself. But I, I believe that I can heal some of those broken beliefs by continuing to face them and walk through it and be okay. Like, look at all we've been through. Look at, especially in the last year, look what we freaking survived. Can we give ourselves some credit for that? Like, <laughs> right? We're here. Yes. That's amazing. You're totally right, but it seems like it's so much easier to give everyone else credit and not necessarily ourselves. And I said that as a we, but that really was an I statement. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being honest about that. But yeah, we do. We give a lot of the credit away. We give a lot of our power away, especially as women. And I just want to co-sign on what you said about like, you can't remember a time. I can't remember a time like I just decided last week, I know we're not, we're talking about dating, but now we're, now we're talking about bodies. I said last week to somebody, I was like, I'm not going to count calories anymore. I just decided I am no longer going to do this. Cause I think I've been counting calories since I was 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. That was like my first diet. Like, it's no wonder that I'm still processing this right now. And my one goal in life as a mother is to not pass this crap down to my daughter, right? Because mm. we carry it and it does impact our love lives and it does impact even my relationship. Because if I like have an up day, I'm having a good day, I'm feeling sexy. And, you know, then I give that to my husband. And if I'm like having an icky body day, then I'm like, ick. And I actually had a friend who once said to me, you may have heard this phrase, don't yuck my yum. <laughs> and I'm always saying this to my kids. Like, if you don't like it, it's not on your plate. You don't have to worry about it. So, you know, my husband kind of threw that back at me and was like, don't yuck my yum. If I'm like, oh, but I don't like this little pooch or like these pants don't fit because he's looking at me going, you're beautiful. I love your body. I love how you look. And how does that feel to him when I'm like, oh, but my thighs and I need to do more setups. Like, why? We need to stop it. So I'm I'm telling myself to stop it, <laughs> but I'm telling anybody else that just needs that reminder of, first of all, that's just not sexy in any way. And second of all, he is not looking at your body in the way that you are looking at your body or the way that other women are looking at your body or the way that, you, I don't know, your parents or generations of women in the past are looking at your body. And like, let's just all agree to just stop it. <laughs> I would love that. I'm, I'm wondering, you kind of inferred that this was where this came from. In certain rom-coms, I think we were taught that 
only certain looking or types of women deserved love. And if love is this huge goal for, oh my God, I don't, I don't think I've met a person where love or affirmation in some form wasn't the overarching goal, the why, like you said earlier. So I'm wondering where these romantic comedies fed these deep seated insecurities we have as women. Like for sure. Of course, (laughs) of course they did. Uh, So many things. And, and, you know, like I'm thinking about um, the beginning of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, you've seen. Oh my, yes. Oh my. Do you remember how like she would measure her waist every single day? Like that's in there for a reason. That's in there because that's what women in the 1950s were doing because they wanted to make sure that they were maintaining their figure. I like, I remember even my grandmother and I mean, she comes from like the great depression and like, they literally didn't have enough food. It was a completely different way of thinking around, around size, because if you were thick, you were like well-fed and that meant your family did well. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. she's, she's the daughter of immigrants and she was, always really really small and like that that was the image that she was putting forward all the time right so that had to be maintained and then you better believe that then got passed down to my my aunt and my dad and then to me and these things that these beliefs are not always our own they're most times not they're from the 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 stories that we watch or that we're told they're from our family stories as well and the way that they interact with us and it's a little bit freeing when you look at it in that way like oh this isn't really my stuff I don't have to carry this around anymore because this isn't mine Mm. (laughs) what would happen if you just let that go whatever you believe is the reason that you haven't found your person or aren't satisfied with your person that you're with right now like what if it just wasn't true how would that free up your life? Because it probably isn't true. <laughs> you've formed a belief around it because you've looked for experiences to confirm your, your bias already mm-hmm. and your belief already. So what if it wasn't true? How would that change the next action you take? We've come far too close to the truth, so I'm going to pivot. Um, you- <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's just, how I do. <laughs> I could I could talk to you about that all day. But there are some women I know you work with that image is a huge part of their day to day, which are the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, specifically Garcelle, who I, from afar, worship and love very dearly. She's an incredible human. How did you two meet? Uh, we met on my podcast, actually. <laughs> no. No, we met on her podcast, and then she did my podcast, Dates and Mates, and then... Um, and then she was like, you know, I'm doing this show, (laughs) you know, it's all real. Like she's really looking for love. And she was like, maybe you can help me on the show. And I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Where do I sign? (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that you're there. I feel like we needed a voice of reason in all of these seasons of chaos, please. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with Garcelle, you know, she's such a she's such a rare human, um, especially in the reality show landscape. But you know, what you saw on that show is real. And she was really, she was not prepared for what was coming, (laughs) but she was really willing to, to ask some of the kinds of questions that we've been asking 
today and to unpack some of those beliefs she had, you know, from her divorce and, um, you know, her husband cheated on her in a very public way, like recovering from that takes some unpacking, takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of authenticity of like, you can't sweep that under the rug. So what are we going to do with it? Cause it's here. So, um, yeah, I've, I've had an amazing experience working with Garcelle. You may see me later in the season. I don't know. And, um, yeah. And Garcelle and I were still, can I say she's had, no, she said it on the reel. She had a relationship during the course of the time we were working together. That relationship ended. So we're back talking again. I had my first paparazzi experience with her actually. No, you didn't tell us about it. Wildest freaking thing. Um, we were just meeting for lunch and paparazzi cares about capturing celebrities eating lunch so yeah she gets out of the car and like we got swarmed like five guys like jump out of their cars in the bushes and are like taking pictures from every angle let me tell you because <laughs> there's some pictures that came out in like the daily mail and i was like i did not know my dress looked like that from that angle but um <laughs> see this is why we have to get really body positive and comfortable but uh yeah and like that's a whole other element that i'm not sure listeners can relate to, but, you know, can understand from watching on the show. And I've had other celebrity clients where they're like, I can't go online. You know, I can't be dating someone just out there in public. Like think of the pressure that puts on a relationship. I was just having lunch with her and I'm in the tabloids. Imagine if she's on a date. First date. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing. And I also, I'm on the Drew Barrymore show. So I'm, I'm working, (laughs) I'm working on getting Drew, uh, to find love again. But, you know, she's in a different place too. She's been divorced twice. She has small kids. Garcelle's kids are older and she's got this new talk show. So she's like, it's, it's, it's not number one position in her life. And that's the thing that's important for people to realize. Like when they come to work with me, most of my clients are, are like, I'm tired of doing it the way I've been doing it. And I, I really need help to find love now. And if you work with me, Finding love has to be your number one or maybe two priority. Can you devote three months to making love your top priority? And like for Drew Barrymore, not her top priority right now. And that's fine. And for some of the listeners right now, maybe your career is more important. Maybe your family is more important. Maybe your health is more important. Let that be okay if that's where you are right now. Mm. I, I almost would think of it as like a position of power if it weren't this all consuming priority. Yeah. And it's just important not to like throw it out entirely because I do think who you choose to blend your life and your finances and your family and your mental health and everything with is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And yet it's the decision that most people leave to chance. So what would happen if you put a little bit of a process or strategy or focus around finding love? but it's so much easier if it's someone else's fault. Come on. If I have this blind sure. entity, I can blame it on. Please. Absolutely. Absolutely. My body image issues are my mom's fault. A hundred percent. And she doesn't have to deal with them every day. I do. So why don't I just go ahead and take responsibility for my co-participation in that conversation too? Oh, did you have a specific gem like that that you passed on to Garcelle that you've seen make a specific change in her dating life while you've been working together? Gosh, I mean, you know, she when she got divorced, she had two small children. And that was a huge, 
priority. And she has, she has an older son who just had a baby last year. So, you know, she has, she has a, 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 her family is an important part of her life. And that's what she devoted. Grandma? She's a grandma. She's a grandma. Oh, I (laughs) love that. What a hot. And she owns it. You know, grandma navigating this world. Yeah. I think it was also helpful to let her know, like she's, she's done the hard work and maybe it's time now to think of you and what you need, because especially as women, right? We devote so much to other people. We give and we give and we give. And it's really her time to receive. She deserves that. And I don't know who needs to hear this, who's listening, but you deserve love. You deserve to have someone who loves you unconditionally and supports you. Whatever your story is, whatever baggage you're carrying, whatever made you feel like you weren't unlovable or that made you feel like you needed to get your love met in another way. Like a lot of time, I work with a lot of very, um, let's say type A ladies like me who are, you know, are very driven, very career focused and are giving all of their love to their job because they get love in return. Oh, when I work overtime and I, and I take on extra projects and I go to dinners after work with clients, then my boss sees me and I get more money and I get accolades, I get awards and I get all these, I get all this stuff mm-hmm. and that's filling me up. But then there's this giant gaping hole that that stuff doesn't fit into. And yet we give more energy to the thing that's giving us love. So there's a feng shui, <laughs> there's a feng shui principle where attention goes, energy flows. So it's no wonder if all of your attention is on your job or your family or your kids, that your love life skills are atrophying and the energy is not flowing there. And, you know, you, you've talked before about how there's similarities between the things that I'm telling people about love and other areas of your life. They're completely applicable. And sometimes when I'm working with a client, I'll ask if they're having an issue in love, where else in their life those themes or challenges are showing up. And sometimes you can fix them in one area by fixing them in the other area. So if you ha- do not have good boundaries in relationships, I I sure bet if I look at your work experience, you have set trouble setting boundaries there too. And if you practice and if you can't do it in love, start at work and then you might be able to do it in love too. You just nailed me to the ground. You you completely just nailed me. I oh, see you. I, I see you. I, I, I have no doubt that you do. I can tell that you do. And I'm equal parts obsessed with it and scared by it. Uh, <laughs> That's what I am for, always. <laughs> I like going deep. I like going deep. You saw that on, on The Real Housewife. <laughs> I mean, that's but where the good stuff lives. It is. You know, I I feel like we're afraid of the deeper stuff sometimes because it's messy. But I love the mess. I love sitting in discomfort. Like I actually, I was talking to somebody about yoga and how I even use yoga principles with my client. I put myself in uncomfortable situations in yoga not because I love twists because I freaking hate twists, you know, like anything where you're bound, your arm is through your (laughs) leg and around your back and whatever. I hate it. 
I hate it. I hate it. And if I can tolerate that discomfort on the mat, it means that the next time I'm in an uncomfortable situation with my husband at my kid's school, with my kids, with my babysitter, with my coworkers, I can tolerate it because I've, I've already pushed through an uncomfortable situation. Everything's related. If this depth is so important, do you think reality shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette actually create or leave space for love to actually bloom? I really try to keep my mouth shut about The Bachelor. And I actually, the season nine opener of Dates and Mates, I have Nick Vile from The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and The Bachelor yeah, of Paradise. I was fine. like, you've been on like every Bachelor show there is. <laughs> so I unpack that with him a little bit. But can I say this on air? Well, I'm already here, so I might as well. I do think that sometimes reality shows do a disservice to the world. And you know, I say this having, I've also hosted, I've been on two reality shows um, about dating and relationships myself. So um, I try not, I try to do no harm. I try to only do shows where I'm educating, enlightening and inspiring people, which I guess in some way, some people feel inspired by The Bachelor. I feel disempowered as a female, but may, I mean, some people might feel inspired by the fairy tale but it's because we look at that as a goal and it's a completely contrived situation. And I, I'm not sure if all of the audience of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette have the ability to separate the fiction from the reality because we get so swept up in the story. Do you think there's even a way we could do that to present these stories in a way that would be healthy and contribute to our society and our ability to love and find partners? I would say yes, but both of my shows have been canceled. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, maybe the next one, let's hope, let's hope. But one show that I did do, it, it was called uh question of love and it was taking couples who'd been together about a year and making them ask and honestly answer questions that would illuminate the tough spots in their relationship. And they also moved in together, which is another pressure cooker situation, which we don't have time to go all into, but is definitely a theme of 2020 slash 2021 moving in and just throwing caution to the wind and being like, let's see what happens. And so I, you know, I walked them through answering, asking and answering those questions that a lot of times people gloss over. And I think that was really instructive, but there's another show that I absolutely love. And I found that it was picked up for a new season, a couple therapy on Showtime. And it's literally just that you're just watching couples therapy, but it's just so informative. And I, I just find, I learn also from watching other people solve problems. Nobody's relationship is perfect. You're going to go through ups and downs. The question is how willing are you to stay in the game? You know, I was saying earlier, like my husband and I just keep showing up and we keep staying curious. How curious can you get? How much can you show up for yourself and your partner? How much can you walk through the discomfort and know that if you're doing it together, you're stronger in solving the problem with two, two brains and also a therapist. (laughs) And that's ultimately better and more instructive than one. I remember that old adage, you know, therapist children are the most messed up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know if that's actually true, but has being a relationship expert affected your own love life? 
I want to say yes, but no, because my husband is just like the lowest drama person on the planet. And he comes from a ridiculously nice and thoughtful and wonderful family. <laughs> so basically I got lucky in a way I got lucky, but in a way I, I really was mindful about choosing him and cho looking for someone like him to be my life partner. What it told me as the child of divorce is that it doesn't have to be dramatic. <laughs> it, it actually shouldn't be dramatic. It shouldn't, it should, you shouldn't have high highs and low lows. My husband and I do not fight. We have different opinions. But it never gets to the level of like screaming, throwing, name calling, because I have so much respect for him that I, I never want to hurt him. I would never want to say things without thinking of how they're going to to land for him. So, I mean, is our relationship perfect? No. I mean, is any relationship perfect? I don't know. But I think from that mindfulness, maybe I, I will say through being a coach, I I've become a better listener for sure. And that's something I try to uh, share, share with my clients. And maybe that is a, a skill that has improved my relationship because we're able to really hear one another and we're, be, we're able to listen well when there's a problem to the other person instead of trying to convince them of our position or just waiting for our turn to speak, which is how most people solve problems. Yeah, I I wish there was an elementary school class on listening because that was not a skill I was taught early on at all, even as an actor, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Um, okay, mm. I'm going to put your amazing skills to the test in some hypotheticals through the lens of rom-coms. Are you game? I'm so down. Okay. What rom-com leading man demonstrates the best dating etiquette? I just watched Bridesmaids again with my daughter, which please don't have judgment of me as a parent because she definitely was too young for some of the material. I fast forwarded through the sex scenes, but I, I do think it's kind of a perfect rom-com because um, there's there's both the the guy that you absolutely don't want to fall for and the guy that you absolutely should fall for. So like the John Hamm character is the guy that, that we all fall for, but know that he's no good for us. And yet we are kind of addicted to that feeling of being with him. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Chris O'Dowd character who is sweet and thoughtful. He doesn't leave after they have sex. And he, he like sticks with her until she turns on him, right? And insults him. And he holds a firm boundary for a while and makes her really prove that he should allow her back into his life. So that's the kind of rom-com guy that, <laughs> that I, I like to see that he's not just blindly following her, letting her treat him in any way that he's showing her what it looks like to be a principled person, to be somebody who is reliable, to be someone who is caring. And also that he makes her step up to the plate to be the best version of herself if she's going to win him back. Oh, I love that answer. Okay. <laughs> I told you, I was like, I'm going to have a good answer on this. I just oh, need to Oh, you out. did. You nailed it. Obsessed. Thank you. Okay. Who is the rom-com couple most likely to make it in the long haul? Mm, another great question. Um, 
<laughs> I'm like, I need to watch more rom-coms. <laughs> do you have one? Um, how do you feel about when Harry met Sally and the whole best friends into lovers trope? Um, mm. Because oh, I, like I think they saw, <laughs> you don't like that. Because I'll tell you why I like it and then tell me why I'm wrong. Cause I'm sure I am. They, they, there was no illusion of the best versions of themselves. They saw cracks and all from the beginning. And that's when they fell in love with each other. Not the best parts of themselves it was the real parts of themselves that's what I like I do like that um I we get overly attached to the friends who become lovers idea I find that more relationships if they don't start out romantic it's very hard to flip them into a romantic you know maybe an oldie but a goodie would be you've got mail (laughs) okay maybe because I'm so I'm so bullish on dating apps that uh I really believe that that dialing in your love or dialing up your love online as they did in that <laughs> is really the best way to have an expanded dating pool beyond just who you would meet by chance. Hmm. I like that too. I like that too. What fictional rom-com character is your dream client? <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 500 Days of Summer. First of all, I don't know why I am like nutty for him. I think he's adorable and he is so charming. He's so talented. He's a triple threat. Mm-hmm. Why the heck is he letting himself be jerked around by the summer girl? <laughs> I wanted to reach into that movie and shake him, honestly, and and maybe also give him a kiss on the cheek. But we're going to keep it professional because this is who I want as my client. <laughs> I would talk to his character because he deserves so much better. Okay. You've made it to the lightning round. You ready? Yes. Big weddings or elopements? I'd say elopements, but I had a big wedding because my husband wanted one and I had a great wedding. It was like the best day of my life. So uh, elopements, but like with a fun party. <laughs> Champagne or vodka tonic? Neither. I don't, I don't like the bubbles. Um, vodka tonic. <laughs> we'll go vodka tonic. I'm a wine girl. I just drink wine and I wine while I drink wine. Me, Absolutely. Best Friday night ever. <laughs> Sexy or funny? Funny. Always funny. Amen. For sure. Biggest turn off. Addiction to cell phones. Turn on. Mm-hmm. Silence. <laughs> I kind of love that answer. Okay, well then, very quietly, to give you a bit of silence, what is the greatest act of love you've ever witnessed? I didn't experience this personally, but I witnessed George Lopez's then wife, not his wife anymore, but uh, his then wife gave him her kidney when he needed a kidney transplant. And I was like, that is really giving of yourself. (laughs) That is a new level. So um, hopefully I will never need a kidney, but if I do, my husband sure as hell better open up and give me his if, I'm, if we're a match. I think you've sowed some good seeds to, to, to get that. And what a metaphor. Kidney worthy. Kidney oh. worthy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Deep love should just open you up. You are a woman I could give a kidney to. <laughs> Demona Hoffman, thank you so much for your time and your insight and your heart and your wisdom and all the things. I'm so grateful. 
Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful talking with you. Oh, you too. I'm kind of obsessed with you. I think it's kind of mutual. (laughs) And now, as promised, my chat with the amazing women from a broader way. Sydney Morton and Ayadeli Cassell, thank you so much for sharing your time and heart with me today. I just feel like I'm surrounded by the best of the best. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure. I've been lucky enough to know you both for eight years through a foundation called A Broader Way. And this week on the Meet Cute platform, our listeners are going to be able to hear original stories written, directed, produced, and even voice acted by the graduates of your program. Can you guys take a minute and tell us more about the A Broader Way Foundation and the resources and programs you all curate? Sure. The broad overview is that a Broadway Foundation is an organization that was founded about 11 years ago by Adina Menzel. The story goes and Tay Diggs. The story goes with uh, <laughs> with a bunch of like just like-minded artists who really wanted to give young people an opportunity to experience a summer camp. And I think the awesome thing is how it has evolved. So I'll let um, Sydney tell that part of the story. Yeah, it it has had quite an evolution in just over a decade. It started out as just a two-week camp. So we would take a busload of 10 to 14-year-old young women and femmes, uh, take them out of New York City to the Berkshires for two weeks and just, you know, immerse them in the arts and camp life with some of the, you know, world-class artists um, in the Broadway community teaching these classes and and helping them curate their art. And then um, over time, it also became a year round program. So we have six workshops throughout the year with all of those campers who eventually we renamed future leaders. And then this past year, uh, we expanded what we call the grad program. And then there are other opportunities like working with the podcast Meet Cute um, that we can take our uh, grads and say, hey, who's interested in writing or directing or producing or acting? We have a connection to a podcast. Would you like to be involved? So that's become a year round program in and of itself with our, what, like a hundred, we have like a hundred grads now at this point. So Ayadeli and I direct that section of a broader way. So we still have the two week summer camp. We have the workshops during the year. That's all for the future leaders. And then we stay connected with the grads um, through our grad program. We have a program called the Internship Program where we provide payment to our young people who are doing unpaid internships at other organizations so that they essentially are paid internships because unpaid internships are very prohibitive, as we know. So yeah, there's a lot of cool programming that we're doing uh, year-round in our grad program. So you mentioned you were founded by Adina Menzel and Tay Diggs, who are not only huge names on Broadway, but also in something we love around here, romantic comedies. Keeping that in mind, what are your guys' relationship to romantic comedies? Ooh, I, I mean, I, I, I love it. I think it's light, lighthearted and, um, you know, I don't like stressful uh, content. Like I'm not a horror movie person. I'm not a, 
I don't like, I don't like, and I don't like suspense or th like thrillers in that way, you know? So give me a good Sandra Bullock, you know, Ryan Reynolds, The Proposal. <laughs> like, I love that. I could watch that all day. Just, it feels good, you know? <laughs> I could watch The Proposal nine million <laughs> times and never get sick of it. It's so good. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I, I actually, a couple years ago, I got into reading romance novels and mm. And it kind of started as like a tongue in cheek thing with, with our friend Darren Biggert of reading like the Christmas romance novels because we would watch the Christmas Hallmark movies. And I was like, why don't I do this year round? I know that romance novels are a thing year round. And I got so into it. And um, yeah, so I, I read romance. I'm obsessed with uh, Drew Barrymore. I think that there aren't enough Drew Barrymore movies and we need, <laughs> we need another Drew Barrymore. Um, so yeah, I, I'm the same way. I like feel good things. And mm -hmm. my, my, the proposal is, uh, never been kissed. I never get sick of that movie. I could watch mm. it every day. Yeah. Shakespeare in love. Oh, I yes. mean, I don't, I love that. I mean, I was obsessed with that film too. So yeah. So I have a good, I have a good relationship with it. <laughs> Ooh, Shakespeare in love. I mean, now in Handmaid's Tale, it's a little hard to be attracted to Joseph Fiennes, but in Shakespeare in love, yeah. oh boy, he really did it for me. Um, one of the amazing things about a broader way is that everyone that works there is not only an incredible person, but is generally led an incredibly impressive career. I, I just don't know how to say that. And you both are such great examples of that. I mean, Ayadeli, I'm pretty sure you're the most famous female tap dancer alive. You're on a stamp, for goodness sake. Um, I'm bragging. She is not. And Sydney, you just finished filming, I guess what you could call an anti-fairy tale playing a real life princess. You are playing the iconic Meghan Markle in Harry and Meghan Escape from the Palace. Yes. So as a rom-com lover, I am now on a rom-com channel on Lifetime. Um, yeah. So this is the third installment. The first two films, um, and all three films have had different actors playing Harry and Meghan, but the first two films were definitely rom-coms. So the first one was about them dating, Harry and Meghan dating. And then the second one was about the wedding. And ours is a little bit more of uh, the drama because it's called Harry and Meghan escaping the palace. So it, it's the timeline is from uh, right after Archie is born, baby Archie, up to the infamous Oprah interview that, that happened this year. Oh, okay. I have to stop you. You brought up the Oprah interview. I think so many of us watch that interview, whether you're interested in Harry and Meghan for the fairy tale of it all or for the political aspects, the very real and important dynamic they represent in America, if not the world. What was your experience watching that interview versus embodying Megan during that interview? And did embodying a character change your perspective on it? Um, no, actually. I, I watched watching it um, as a woman of color. I, I definitely, it was triggering, if I'm going to be honest, um, because 
while my experiences obviously are not identical, I have everything, everything she described feeling I have felt. Um, and I think a lot of women of color, people of color can, can identify with feeling whether or not you believe she's telling the truth. I know there are always people who are like, I don't know if these, this is all true, but feeling like you don't speak the language or you didn't get the, you didn't, you weren't taught. You showed up to something, you were invited in and then you get there and you're like, I, oh, I missed something. Everybody speaks a certain language about this thing and I don't speak it. The feeling of an undercurrent of racism that um, is downplayed or that you're not protected from. Um, the resentment of a, a woman of color being intelligent and well-spoken and strong and, and talented. I mean, when she, when she talked about, I was good at, at doing the monarchy thing, the Royal thing. And they didn't like that. Like I, we've experienced hmm. all of it. I'm married to a white man and I go to where he's from and I feel like an alien sometimes, you know what I mean? Like the feeling of being displaced. So it, it was kind of triggering. And, and in a year where we all experienced uh, overt or, you know, slow trauma over time, I, um, I, I it was really emotional watching it because I felt how brave and graceful she was for saying these things out loud, knowing the backlash that she could probably get, would get. And she did it really well too. I mean, that woman was prepared for that interview. It, it was, she could handle being president in all honesty. And I, and I, I don't know if she should be, but she could handle it because it was masterfully done. Uh, masterfully handled. Um, so I felt that way before getting the role and then I got the role and I had to study it. And I still feel that way. I, I think it's a, a historical interview and situation and I think she, she killed it. <laughs> well, Megan Markle is an iconic woman being played by another iconic woman, Sydney Morton. That's how I feel Aww, about that. Thanks. And <laughs> Io, you are pretty much the same. I mean... Come on, you've performed everywhere. Any dream venue, you have done it. Carnegie Hall, the White House, Radio City Music Hall, Lincoln Center. And the most recent step in your career, at least that I'm aware of, is choreographing the tap numbers in the revival of Funny Girl on Broadway, where they just announced Beanie Feldstein would be your Fanny Bryce. What mm -hmm. is exciting you about this new project? What I'm excited about is being able to man the, or I should say woman, <laughs> the tap dance choreography, <laughs> you know, uh, because generally these are roles, these are uh, well, roles or creative roles that go to people who are not steeped in the art form. Um, generally, it's just somebody who has a general sort of cursory knowledge of the art. And, um, and often the times those people, you know, end up benefiting greatly, whereas the people who are really like the carriers of the tradition and the legacy of the of the form don't get those same opportunities. Um, so I'm really eternally grateful to Michael Mayer for for thinking about, you know, how, how to shift that dynamic and how to change that, you know, 
Um, and maybe, and I don't, I don't, I haven't had this particular conversation with him, but you know, maybe he just recognized that he wanted that there was tap dance in the show and he wanted it to be good. And he was like, and I know you as a tap dancer, so, <laughs> you know, um, let's make it some, let's make it the best that it can be. So that's what I want to believe was the, uh, the impetus there. Barbara Streisand was an icon to me in childhood. Did you watch the film as a young girl? No, no, I didn't watch the film as a young girl. I mean, I've seen it. But I wasn't watching it with like uh, with any knowledge that oh one day I'm gonna do that. As a matter of fact, very often most things that were in my you know that that were available to me, I did not see myself in at all. I feel like it marks a shift in a way, however small, it marks a shift in in what is possible by having me be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Would you mind talking more about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I knew when I was nine years old that I wanted to be an actor. I was like, I'm gonna be a fan. That's what I wanted to do. You know, I went to NYU for as an acting major at Tisch School of the Arts, and I remember working on shows and 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 plays and scenes that had characters that were not of my experience that I would never. I knew I would never be cast for. I knew that nobody was gonna look at me and be like, oh, she's gonna play Juliet. Or, you know, she's going to play Laura in The Glass Menagerie. I just never felt that that was a possibility for me. And so it was really frustrating as a young person to sort of feel like you're training, training to, to work in an industry that really had no space for you. Like our, my references for people who look like me were very few. They were Rosie Perez. I remember when I saw Daphne Rubin Vega on the, you know, the Rent poster. And I just like was floored. I never thought that I would see somebody who <laughs> I felt like I looked exactly like her, you know, in a, in a Broadway show. Like I just thought that that was like impossible. Um, but I was so happy because I like, oh, wait, there is possibility that I could really do this. So, yeah, most films that were out and most things that were like popular in the popular domain. I don't know. I never saw myself like that. I never saw myself in those things. So, you know, things have slowly shifted, but I think it's because of our own tenacity, <laughs> you know, and and constantly knocking down doors to be seen. That's unfair you had to do that, but I'm really grateful we're in a world where I do get to see so much of you. Kind of what you're hitting on is what sparked me initially to want Meet Cute to partner with a broader way. I thought that your grad's unique points of view and experiences when it comes to love were voices that needed to be heard. So Meet Cute and a Broadway partnered, and we are now releasing a round of stories on Meet Cute, written, directed, produced, acted in by your graduates. Could you guys talk a little bit about the process and the collaboration? Yeah. So Ashley, you were so generous and you said, hey, I'm working with uh, this podcast, Meet Cute, let's collaborate. Let's let's get three episodes written and even produced, directed, maybe starring uh, some of your young people. And, you know, even if our young folks are not trying to go into the arts professionally, we don't consider it a pre-professional arts program, but we do encourage all of them to, to go for these types of opportunities. Get up on stage and dance. Everybody's going to dance, whether you consider yourself a dancer or not. You know, get up and, and do some of your spoken word, whether you're going to be a poet or not. Some of them end up becoming all of these things. And, but all of them are very brave in that they will jump at the opportunity. And so, you know, we came to them and we said, would you like to write a 15 minute uh, romantic comedy script for a podcast? And they all said yes. So, I mean, how many was it? It was like um, 11 <laughs> scripts written. That's amazing. Yeah. And everyone at Meet Cute was so 
um, kind, you were also kind that you really helped them understand the writing process and the format and led them and guided them. And, and then you chose three um, to produce. And for the folks whose uh, writing wasn't chosen, offered them opportunities to produce direct mm -hmm. and even do some voiceover work, I think. Yeah, we're going to have this like week of programming on Meet Cute that is entirely created by um, our grads. And it's, it's just really uh, an incredible opportunity. And I just have to add, which was very exciting to them, they were paid a professional mm -hmm. rate. And again, I mean, I mentioned unpaid internships early on, but so often uh, mm -hmm. these types of opportunities that are given to young people, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's exploitative, but there is, mm -hmm. you know, a, a little bit of like, well, you're getting paid an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it, it, this was not that type of experience. So it, it was really wonderful for them. The other thing that I think was like really invaluable was the fact that you made sure, Ashley, that they knew that they were going to be held accountable just as any other professional coming in, you know, since the beginning from communication to punctuality to professionalism. And I, and I think that that is one of the things that we train them for in like our bubble, you know, but like to actually get the opportunity to say like, actually, like now this is not a training session. This is actually the real deal. You know, even I felt a little bit of the pressure, you know, I'm like, oh, but like, you know, when the rejection emails come in, when, you know, and they say like, you know, thank you so much for submitting, but we are not, we're not going to proceed with your script at this moment in time. Uh, let us know if you have any, you know, whatever questions. Thank you so much for your submission. <laughs> like, it won't be the last time that they get that. And so it was just a, a great, a learning opportunity in all ways for them. Are you kidding? Not only were they valuable, they were assets. I, I'm going to use an example of the directors. They were directing equity actors from Broadway, SAG actors, professional actors who have been in many rooms and make a living doing this type of work, who stuck around after our sessions just to compliment the A Broader Way students. One of them could sense a particular actor would do better if they had affirmation in the moment and they gave it. Another one came prepared, knowing the five-act structure of a meet-cute, telling the actors what beats they needed to hit when. It was like, these grads did their homework, showed up like professionals, and you know what? In turn, delivered a very professional product. Oh, I say, we say it all the time that we wish we had a program like A Broader Way mm -hmm. when we were growing up, because yeah, I mean, we really, the philosophy of the program Mm -hmm. Again, and this is Toria Beard and Darren Biggert's, you know, creation is that we're all equal, you know, so every activity, the adult staff is participating in every activity and every conversation is going to center the young people's voices just as much, if not more so, hopefully more so than ours. And so they do have a comfort when they're in a room with adult professionals they really do have this comfort and confidence to speak up in whatever, in whatever role they have been given. And I mean, you know, I'm well into my thirties and I, and I'm still working on not having flop sweat when I'm, you know, taking on a new leader role, you know? So yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. We, we marvel at it all the time. That strength of authenticity, that fearlessness to live in yourself is a quality I still struggle with and so admire as female identifying leaders what 
has your journey been? And what is your personal relationship to your authentic voice? Hmm. Um, that is a beautiful question. I will say this. I feel like my my personal, like literal voice has deepened with uh, the deepening of like my artistry. What I mean by that, and specifically with tap dancing, like one of the, the things I think would most encompass the art form is improvisation and also honing an, indiv an individual expression and a, uh, that is you, you know, like a, that you cannot succeed truthfully in the in the form if you are not listening to who you are and what your point of view is and the things that move you and the things that you like and and the things that you hear right and so i feel like i was really lucky to enter this form at the age of 19 because i feel like since then i mean it's been a long time since i've been 19 years old but every year but with every practice with every performance with every like session with every like learning experience i've learned more about who i am and learn to like be rooted in that and to lead with that, you know? Um, also, I happen to think that I'm anchored to a form that brings my uh, black and Puerto Rican uh, roots together in like the best way. And so I feel like I always, as an artist that, that has been put in the situation of having to create my own work, then I lead with who I am. Uh, and because it's the thing that I know the most and the thing that I trust the most. And so I feel like with every like, I'm speaking to you about where I grew up, what kind of music I like, what do I hear? And, and, and also the appreciation of what my unique point of view is, right? So that I understand that nobody has this uh, experience. And so nobody can give it voice with the same amount of power as I, as I can myself. Yes. I, you know, I started as a dancer at four in ballet, which is a very different voice. It, it's, it's a, it's a more um, monolithic voice and that's, and that's evolving thanks to people like Misty Copeland and obviously Dance Theater of Harlem. And there are a lot of ways uh, that you can broaden the voice of, of ballet. But for the most part, you're trying to fit a certain aesthetic. You're trying to hit certain positions the right way. And individuality, certainly when you're an older ballet dancer, some of that comes into play, but for the most part, you're trying to make it into the core and it's silent and very white. <laughs> so my relationship to voice was, uh, I, I, it took a long time to develop one. And I recently had to dance for a project and I hadn't danced in a long time. And um, the choreographer was someone I had worked with when I first moved to New York almost 15 years ago. And, and he was like, don't you think you've grown so much? Don't you? And I'm like, you know, I hadn't danced in years. I'm thinking I'm going to look rusty. And instead he's looking at me going, you're better than ever. And I was like, I know who I am. I, I know my voice now. And so I maybe dance, I can speak through dance more clearly, like you were saying, Io, than I used to. Also, we just survived a pandemic and all of that. So, I mean, I, I'm at the point yeah. now where no holds barred. You know what I mean? I'm, it's like I'm, I'm living life to the fullest in every way. I'm dancing hard and big and free. None of the restraint of the, the little girl in the ballet studio, you know. So um, I'm still finding mine, I think. And I just want to say, too, I mean, we're in the midst of camp right now for a broader way. But. Io has this exercise that she always does with our LITs where they write these mission statements 
and they fill in the blank. I am dot, dot, dot. I believe dot, dot, dot. I fight slash strive for dot, dot, dot. And, um, and we talked with them today about how important it is to not only write these things in long form and detail um, and really delve deep, but to speak them and to return to them over and over again, because it will help them hold on to what their voice is when they're in all of these different rooms and environments. And yeah, I don't know. It was, it was just a really, it's a really powerful exercise. And again, I wish I'd had it when I was that little girl in the ballet studio. <laughs> Even today's session, we were talking to them about like, how do they activate that in the real world? Right. And like, nobody told me, how do you activate your, you know, your, the power of your voice in the real world? Nobody said that to me. <laughs> You know, I mean, I wish me too, Cindy. I wish I had had this this specific guidance, this real guidance. Like when I was younger, I think I would have I would have uh, stood a lot more confidently in my in my voice in in many ways. You know, um, a lot sooner. Um, that's one of the things I think. That's one of the things that keeps me coming back to Broadway year after year is just that I I know that what we, the work that we do is transformative, and and that even if it seems that some things don't really um, land in a, in a significant way, in a profound way to them in the moment, I know that they're gonna return to it. And I mean, what, what is the, the mission statement of, the, of a broader ways to amplify the, you know, amplify the power and the voices of young, you know, initially it was young women, but not young women and femmes, but now I think it's young people. And I think the gift of amplifying that authentic voice that you have, taught or bestowed onto these ABW grads is so apparent in the work they did. We look at different sexualities, different cultures, different lenses of love, different experiences of love, just in these three pieces, dive in, far travels, and on targets. And I just, oh, I can't wait for you guys to listen Yay, to them. I'm we're so excited. I can't wait to hear them. I'm dying to hear them. Yay. I love that so much. I'm not surprised. But yeah. I'm just like, I'm so happy, <laughs> you know. I'm so happy too. Thank you so much for sharing more about A Broader Way with us, for sharing your grads with us, for sharing your hearts and time with us. I'm just adore you both and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sydney Morton and Ayadeli Cassell. Thank you. Thank and you. I, I would... I would be remiss if I didn't say to everybody to please go to a broaderway.org and donate to our organization um, because we're getting to work with really incredible young people and um, check out their episodes on Meet Cute as well. Those were some incredible humans and some incredible words. Thank you all for being a part of something so special to me. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. To check out more of Demona Hoffman, make sure to check out her podcast, Dates and Mates. I want to listen to that Nick Vile episode. Listen to her unpack why he's been on The Bachelor so many times. And to listen to the incredible work of our A Broader Way grads, go over to Meet Cute wherever you get your podcasts and listen to Dive In, Far Travels, and On Targets. They are incredible works of the heart. What a gift I've had getting to speak to you guys each week. I adore you all. Thanks for everything. I'm Ashley Eskew and... I'll have what she's having. <laughs>